Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Our guest today is Nayantara Rodriguez, the president of Namaste for Compassion, an amazing organization that brings yoga to different at-risk groups. Nayantara is also a licensed marriage and family therapist and an instructor instructor at California State University Uh, Fresno in the Department of Counselor Education and Rehabilitation. She's also a clinical supervisor for the Resiliency Center, uh, a wife and a mother of two. As someone who's dabbled with yoga, this conversation was a lot of fun and super informative. If you are enjoying this podcast um, and the other podcasts, you can support us on Patreon or uh, on our various podcast platforms by leaving a rating and a review. It really helps to spread the word. All right, let's go meet Nayantara, and Baker's going to take us there. Fresno's best! Where do you like to eat in Fresno? Uh, okay, so I love eating. I, I'll probably... I could probably go on about where I like to eat in Fresno, but I think because I know you love Indian food and I do too, um, I think I'll focus on standard sweets and spices. Okay. That's on, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's on oh, yes. Blackstone in Dakota. And it just reminds me of India. Like you walk in and people are very nice and it smells really good. And then you can shop and then go and eat. And it's just good. It's good food. And good people. So I think that's probably my favorite place, Indian place to go to. Um, Brahma Bull always reminds me of like my grandparents because when we first moved out here in 87, um, there were not a lot of Indian restaurants. I think that was probably the only one. And we'd always walk there. It was on Shaw and like, you know, by Fresno State, by the 7-Eleven there. So we'd walk there, eat their dosas, so good. And then we would just walk back. So I kind of, you know, I just love that place as well. So I think those would be my two top Indian places to go to. I will say this about Indian sweet spice. Um, I, or, or did I say Indian or is it standard? Is it standard. Indian? Standard. standard. Sorry. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, so I, well, that place has this, uh, I, I've never seen this before in my life. They in I you know because I like to robe the aisles while I wait for my food in there, mm-hmm. and um, you know there's not a lot of aisles, but there's the, the the aisles are stacked with stuff. You know it's like yeah. it's like a it's like a treasure hunt going through those aisles, yeah. mm-hmm. and they have the largest container of turmeric I have ever seen in my life. Sell <laughs> it by the it's I it's it if it's not a gallon it's almost a gallon. Yeah, and I didn't even know that you could buy. You know I've got that my little like standard spice jar of turmeric. Yeah. Um, and I use it in my like shakes and stuff. Cause I'm that guy. Um, and I, you know, it, it just blew my mind. Uh, and there's so many things like that in there. Like, um, one of my favorite dishes is Malai kofta with kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, now, now I'm forgetting the little dumplings, what they're called. Um, shoot. Kofta? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can get like a hundred different, like, Malai kofta like recipe you know like little mm-hmm. recipe boxes and things yeah it's, it's, yeah it's just, i mean you know i i i would say you know there's a 
for me, Indian Kebab Palace is my favorite place uh, mm-hmm. to, to get food in town. But every mm-hmm. place is like a close second for me. It just, it's, yeah. it's, they're all good. But I will say okay. with standard sweet and spices that um, it's fun to be able to shop for stuff while you wait for your food too. Um, yes. Because I think, I think the next step, and I don't know how, you know, we can talk about, you know, cultural appropriate, you know, all the buzzwords for like trying to make your own version of whatever food. But I think ultimately, you know, you want people to get connected to the food, right? And if they can start to yep. make parts of the recipes at home or make a sauce at home, like, it, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I want you to buy the food from there, but I also want you to cook from there. I think that's, that's, that's a good way to step further. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's so easy these days with all of the, you know, little boxes that you're talking about, the curry boxes and then Instapot. There's like a whole Indian community that just posts recipes on Instapot. You just dump it all in, hit a button and it's done. So yeah. When did, when did these restaurants start to appear? Cause I've only been in Fresno for a few years now. Is it, mm. is it a pretty recent development or is it, um, did you, they kind of gradually, it was, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, have you noticed kind of like a, a bigger migration of um, people, you know, Indian folks moving oh, yeah. to town? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, in 87, when I moved out here, I, I didn't, there wasn't a huge Indian community. Like I said, there wasn't even, I don't think an Indian store at that time. And if there was, it was very small. Um, I think, like I said, Brahma Bull was probably the only Indian restaurant that I know of, you know, around my area. And so, but now, yeah, there's just so many more, you know, I don't know, just a huge Indian community here. So a lot more than before. And I think you asked like when, I would say about like mid nineties maybe is when I really started noticing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, and I think it kind of goes back to the whole, you know, the, the Valley is more diverse than people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know, when, live, yeah. when you live in the Bay area or LA and you, you talk about the Valley, you just, you kind of treat it like it's Kansas, but it's just really not. Um, right. It's a much more diverse place. Um, I, I, so let's, I want to jump right into your organization and, and talk about yoga. Um, so your organization is called Namaste for Compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, you know, in, in reading and researching about what you guys do is you said um, on the website, it says that you believe that yoga heals. Yes. Um, and I want you to talk about what that means um, and talk about what it was like to make to to learn about uh, yoga and and become a practitioner of it. Um, learning in India versus you know, I don't know, some places in the states. You know, you can go learn about yoga at a gym or something right. at a twenty four hour right. fitness. Um, so what's different from learn, practicing yoga in India versus my twenty four hour fitness down the street? Yeah. Okay. Um, I love your question. So I think I'm going to go with the first one, which was the healing, right? Um, healing, what it means to me, how yoga helped me to heal. Um, so I think, I think healing itself, just because again, being a licensed therapist, um, and a yoga practitioner, I feel like it's so different for each of us, like what that word really means for us. Um, and it's, I feel like a lifelong process because I feel like at any time in our life, you know, it's life is going to present us with something to heal from. And so I don't think it's just a process that just, you know, it's done. Like, I think it takes like your whole life. Um, and so healing for me has been, has meant like just to befriend who I am, um, mentally, physically, emotionally understand myself. And then 
just be able to, no matter what's going on around me, come back to that place of stillness, like to ground myself, no matter what's happening. Um, and so with yoga, my journey was, you know, going through my master's program in marriage and family therapy. I remember, um, you know, going to therapy and breaking down years and years of like things that have happened to me or trauma or, you know, and, and really understanding and finding these different places that I didn't know were within me. And I remember thinking like nothing else can really help except for talk therapy with me. Like, yeah, working out is fun, etc. And then I ended up in one of my, one of my really good friends classes, Crystal and taking her class. I remember crying like out of nowhere. I just started crying in the middle of like, you know, Shavasana at the end. And I just, I just was like dumbfounded, like, where did that come from? Um, I thought I had processed all these things, you know, I was in therapy um, quite a bit through, all through my master's program and always went back, you know, here and there when I needed it. Um, and so it was just like, where did that come from? And so the more I started just allowing myself, you know, in yoga class or whatever, and not that I would cry every time, but I felt like I was definitely more connected to what was happening internally. Um, there were places that I had, you know, and feelings that I had never felt before until I started doing yoga. And there's scientific reasons behind that, but I definitely feel like that's what really helped me to heal is finding other places and, and other feelings within me that were trapped. And, um, and I say trapped because I thought, I thought they were all worked through, you know, until I went to that yoga class. So I think in that sense, it's really helped me. Okay. And then what, what did you pick up uh, learning it, uh, learning about it or becoming a practitioner in India that you think is maybe different than the way people learn about or practice yoga in the United States? Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to give the United States a bad rap because I think there are a lot of, um, a lot of schools out here that have that spiritual component to it, you know? Um, but I think when I've been to yoga classes in India versus yoga classes here, I think definitely in India, there's more of that spiritual component that's emphasized versus here. Um, I think there, you know, they do a lot more chanting and, and a lot more um, just being still, longer shavasanas, meditation. Um, that spiritual component, I feel, is definitely there you know a little bit more than here but i'm not you know also saying that it's not here at all um because i'm sure there's a lot of schools around here that have that but i think that's been the difference for me yeah and i you know i've i've had mixed experiences with yoga and some classes where i felt like the teacher was taking me on a journey and then some classes where i felt like the teacher was testing my core strength and yeah. you know the the you know uh, not that I don't have core strength, but I definitely don't have as much as, you know, uh, a person that's been doing yoga for a long time and is maybe a bit lighter than me, uh, you know, maybe a bit more flexible than me. Mm -hmm. And I just remember I would go to this class when I lived in Pasadena and it was, it was kind of down off Colorado Boulevard. So it's kind of like, you know, it, you just imagine kind of like 
wealthy suburban rural or wealthy suburban LA crowd, you know, kind of like, you know, I would go to the 11 a.m. class. And so it'd be the people that are not at work, you know, the people that have the time to really spend time in yoga. And I would just, I would go to, I would hide in the back because I didn't want the yoga teacher to see how much I was sweating. Because as soon as she, as soon as she see how much I was sweating, she'd come over to me and whisper in my ear, it's okay. Just go into child's pose. I'm like, no, I don't want to just go into child's pose. Don't make me do that. I came here so I can exercise. I like, want to sweat. She's like, you're straining yourself. That's not what it's about. It's about being in touch with your body. And I just, I just hated her so much because I, you know, I just, I wanted, I, I cause it's, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think that there is, do you think yoga is for everybody or do you think it's just for more flexible people? Cause I, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to break through, but I just, I always felt like there was a wall for me just cause I'm not yeah. naturally flexible. I think it, I think it is for everybody and I, I hope it's for everybody. That's my wish, honestly, because I believe in it so much, you know, and I know it sounds cliche, but I feel like it could be for everybody. It, I think it's the way sometimes it's presented to people um, that just doesn't really stick with them, you know, um, or doesn't feel good for them. And, and that's another part of kind of, you know, what Namaste for Compassion, like why we provide free yoga and the type of yoga that we provide. Um, it just, I, we feel like we want everybody to feel inclusive, you know, and that everybody could be part of what we're doing um and that yoga does have benefits of healing because yoga isn't just the asanas right i mean it's like the pranayama the breathing it's um you know the way that you live it's it's not just the asanas and i think that's what a lot of people think it is it's just like flexibility or it's just the movement but it's not and so i mean anybody can sit down and breathe a little bit deeper right and that's healing so yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think we're, we, what's happening with, or what happened with yoga where it became mainstream is kind of it, the same thing is happening with mindfulness right now. Mm-hmm. Like in my school district, we had a, we have a mindfulness program um, that we're, you know, that we're going through, uh, you know, someone who's bald that lives in the Bay area. And um, you know, I, 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 so my, I guess my question is, is, um, as yoga became kind of secularized in some way in the United States, um, did it lose some of its value? Because you're talking about it being healing, but I think the trend has been more for it to become kind of an athletic enterprise. Right. You know? um, and so do you, think, do you think it loses value when it, when it just is become, it's become kind of just an athletic activity kind of? I think it's, I don't know, it's so bittersweet, you know, because I think, yes, yeah, some of it's lost, but then... I know a lot of people, even some of my students that came in for that athletic piece and then they gained so much more at the end, you know? And so if it didn't have that, you know, that calling like, oh, I I just want to go in and get fit, then maybe they would have never tried yoga in the first place. So, you know, a spoonful of sugar, you know, whatever gets them in the door, it'll, it'll have effect whether they intend it or not. Right. And, you know, I, I do, I mean, there, yeah, I we could go on about, I think this is a long subject, but I think, yeah, there, there are moments where, you know, I've been in a yoga class and I've just been like, man, you know, this is not what it's about and been really frustrated, you know, and then again, you know, me having to, I always like to practice what I preach, you know, no judgment, like just drop in and be on my mat and be with what's happening for me. 
um, to having moments where, you know, I see a student come in and they're all about like just that physical, you know, um, aspect of it. And then eventually I see them, you know, get a little bit softer and not like body wise, just like you can see them changing, you know, they come in and they're not so hard on themselves. Um, they start to be a little bit, you know, calmer within the poses, um, stillness, you see that a lot more happening. So I think that it definitely has its benefits for being more physical here in the United States, whatever, like you said, kind of gets them in the door. And then I try and provide a little bit more. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about how your organization started and kind of like, what was the, what was the motivation, the driver and what, what, what are some of the goals uh, that you hope to accomplish? Yeah. Um, well, so how it started was that um, I was, coming back from a really beautiful trip with my husband. It was the first time after I don't know how many years that we got to get away without the kids. And we were in the Florida Keys for a while and then Puerto Rico. And we were on our way back home. We were on this flight. And my husband had been asking me to watch this movie called Lion. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. But it's, um, it's based on a real life story about this... Um, young man who was lost um, in his village and then eventually gets adopted anyway. It's a beautiful story. But part of that story uh, really depicted what it's like for street children in India, because at one point he was, a sh they call him street children, street child in India. And I, I think I cried. I think a lot of that movie was just me crying. And um, it just, it, it for the first time hit me more than it had ever before because mind you we go we try and go to india every year um my husband and i and every single year i mean no matter where you go in india you're gonna see street children it doesn't matter like they're at every you know kind of corner every other street and you see kids begging um you see kids with no limbs uh and on purpose because a lot of their captors like cut off their limbs so they're sitting here and, you know, begging for them and all their money goes to, to them. Um, you have children who have lost their parents and everything and the government doesn't take care of these kids. It's not like here. And so you have these kids that are there. And I think for me, it was so overwhelming when I would see them face to face that I just, I think part of me had to shut off, right? Because if I allowed that to hit me the way it should have hit me, I think I would have probably lost it, especially after, you know, having kids and what they mean to me. And so I think because I was kind of far removed from that and it was a movie, I was able to finally kind of connect to what I really would have felt if it was real life. And, you know, and I, it just left me like devastated to the point that I was also like, you know what? screw it. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I can to help in whatever way I can. It could be small. It doesn't matter. Like, I just need to help. And I remember telling my, um, my husband, when we get back, like, we have to do something this time around. Like when we go to India, we have to do something. So long story short, I just kind of put it out there on Facebook. I want to do something for street children in India. And, um, I got a core really good group of people that are, a lot of them are still you know board members now for namaste for compassion and we just started fundraising and um we 
we found um, Sister Dharma, who we'll talk about for the Balpushpa home, through a mutual friend, and we ended up going there um, to India, delivering supplies, delivering food uh, directly to the orphans, you know, the street children. Um, so that's how it kind of started, and then it just evolved into well, what can we do here, you know, in our own community? How can we utilize yoga as a mental health tool to reduce trauma in our community? And so we started, you know, doing some community classes here that are free for everybody. We started going out to Juvenile Justice Campus, Marjorie Mason Center, um, those areas to, to just spread the healing benefits of, of yoga and do it for free. Uh, and then we still do fundraise though. So it's kind of morphed into two things. You know, we still every year give to the Balpushpa home every December. Um, if we're not there, we find a way to get the money and supplies there. But, but every year we still fundraise for them, fundraise like recently just for the Creek fires, uh, for organizations that are helping the community and the world. And then we also kind of fundraise for ourselves so we can continue doing our work. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about the Ball Pushpa home and, and what, what it is and what, uh, how, how you got connected? Yeah. Um, so Sister Dharma is the one who runs it. And she was a nun for 50 years in India. And she, you know, traveled India, north, south, east, west, everywhere, um, dedicated her whole life to helping and being of service to others. And about 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago, she just said she couldn't travel anymore she's getting older she's about gosh like 80 something now 80 or so and um she said she couldn't do it anymore but she wanted to still be of service to to the street children especially these children that have nobody and so she bought a two uh bedroom small little apartment like it's half the size of anybody's house maybe less and she dedicated that whole apartment to these kids so what happens is that for 10 years now, she feeds them, gives them medical attention if they need it, um, pays for their schooling, because school isn't free in India. Um, she has about 12 to 13 uh, girls that live in the home. So they're sharing a two bedroom small apartment, two bedrooms, one bath. And then she also pays for boarding school for about 12 to 15 boys. And so her whole life is dedicated just to helping these street children. And so I remember asking her, well, how do you pick? I mean, there's so many, you know, how do you pick these children to come in? And she said that a lot of the way she's found these children is that she'll, you know, be on the street, see somebody, see one of these kids and say, hey, tell me about your story. You know, what happened? Where, you know, what's going on for you? Show me where you live. She'll go and see where they're living and she said I try and get the ones that have nothing at all like no parents nothing um, to help them and then you know I bring them in and, and care for them Wow yeah I mean when you hear those stories you just um, you know I, you can't help but feeling a sense of conviction as you turn on Netflix scratch your stomach and order from Grubhub you know, I mean, it's just a natural kind of uh, reaction. That's, and some people try to avoid that, you know, like the way I turn off the TV when I see an SPCA uh, commercial like that, whatever, yeah. what's her, Sarah McLaughlin. I just, I just, I hate her so much because um, <laughs> I'm just such a dog person that like when I see any yeah. dog suffering, I just want, you know, not, not that those are similar because these are human beings we're talking about. I know what it's you that mean. Same, same kind of reaction that we have. And I, 
And I, I, think, um, I think a sign of maturity is when we start to not look away, right? Um, and not be, you know, I, I, I think there's kind of an immaturity, at least as Americans, and not wanting to see suffering. You know, we try to turn the TV off or pretend it's not there. Pretend, you know, we can go into a whole bunch of other subjects about racial injustice and pretending they're not mm-hmm. there. But we yeah. just like to avoid, right? Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I love that story. And I love, you know, I love hearing stories about people that um, just make their lives completely about others, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of people in our world, you know, we just, uh, I don't like to quote him very often um, because, you know, I don't always agree with him, but um, David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, wrote about two kinds of virtues. There's eulogy virtues and there's resume virtues. Um, mm-hmm. So there's stuff that you can put on your resume, your education, you know, your accomplishments. And then there's eulogy virtues, the things that people will talk about when you, once you've died. And, you know, I think um, it's really hard to get to a place to ignore some of those resume virtues because they're so seductive. But um, I think we'd be a lot better off as a species if we worried about the eulogy stuff. Um, I want to talk about uh, trauma for a second. Um, one of my favorite books about, you know, not that I have a large collection of trauma books, but um, one of my favorite books is called The Body Keeps Score. Yes. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a exactly. book that really makes the case that, you know, trauma lives in your physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people think trauma is like some kind, you know, it's, 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 I, and this maybe comes from like a sense of dualism, like our brain and body are separate. And, you know, I think yoga challenges that, right? Um, sure. And so I just talk a little bit about how you see yoga interacting with trauma and how you understand trauma. Yeah, uh, I love that. I love that book as well. Um, so again, being a licensed marriage and family therapist, I think I see a lot. And then I also teach at Fresno State. So I see a lot of people not understanding what's happening internally, you know, um, they just, we don't understand it. And our society, I feel kind of emphasizes your physical, you know, features, your physical sense more than, Hey, what's going on inside of you, your internal landscape. So I think that, I think to some extent and some level, we're all faced with trauma in some way, you know? Um, And of course, some have way more than others, some have experienced it at higher levels than us, but I feel that from what I've seen and what I've heard, everybody has a story and everybody has some level, whether it be small or huge, of trauma. So I think that our body automatically, because it's so smart, you know, that sympathetic nervous system kicks in, that fight or flight, and you just wanna, like you said, turn it off, run away, you know, not feel it, not be with it, not allow yourself to be there in that emotion of abandonment, sadness, rejection. And so we turn it off and focus on something else, you know, easily. And before you know it, we're grown men and women and that have the same that we've had for years and years and years not recognizing physically but then also how now we make decisions from that place of our wounds and so for me with yoga it was this ability to slow it all down um yes therapy helped but then almost like again go internally like 
as I feel rejection, what's happening for my body, you know, as I feel like I'm not good enough, where am I feeling that inside? Um, and then instead of escaping from it, breathing through it and knowing that it's going to be okay, you know, and then it passes on, you know, like I always call it like in waves, it like pushes you over and then it kind of goes back in and you're able to stand back up, you know? So I feel that's what yoga has really done for me and for people. Um, and I think that's, that's how trauma continues to live in people's bodies because they don't slow things down. And, and, our, and again, our society just has not really um, been vocal about doing that very much, you know, maybe more a little bit now, but I feel like it's more of a trend, you know? Yeah. It almost feels like people want to traumatize themselves more than they want to heal it. Like I, I, you know, those like, uh, what are they called? Tough mutter races where people just like torture themselves for 24 hours straight. I mean, there's, there's probably nothing, you know, there's nothing <laughs> inherently wrong about that. Yeah. Um, but it feels like people answer, answer trauma with like, I got to keep pushing myself, you know, harder yeah. yes. to push through it. It's like, um, you know, if you, you know, if, <laughs> it's like an arrow being inside of you instead of like, you know, pushing, you know, pushing it through all the way and following the point of the arrow, they try and pull out the other way. And those, those, those knives dig in deeper. And I, you know, I mean, it's, I'm sure you see a lot of it at, uh, at the juvenile justice campus. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how, how you see it and how you see yoga working with kids at I mean, if there's kids, if there's people with trauma, it's definitely kids in the system. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Um, well, pre COVID because right now with COVID, they haven't let really anybody in for months and, um, right. definitely missed that place. But pre COVID we were going every single week, um, once a week and working with the girls at juvenile hall. And, um, yeah, I remember, you know, one in particular, I mean, most of them, when we get there, some are, some are, some are open to it. Some really love it and they love the quiet time. Some fight against it because again, trauma is living in their body. Now they're being still and they're starting to feel things that they're not used to feeling and they just want to fight or flight. Right. It, and so they just don't want to be there in it. Um, but, but there's one in particular, I remember, oh gosh, she would, you know, as soon as it got still or I, I'd ask them to, you know, breathe a little bit deeper or just, well, first of all, we do trauma-informed yoga at juvenile justice campus. So we don't walk around them. We don't try and adjust them, you know, any of that because they're hypervigilant. We don't want to scare them even further. So just watching her, she was so uncomfortable in her body. Um, when it got quiet, she was always looking around like what's going on. You know, we never turned the lights off and, um, but she was still super hypervigilant. So, but as the weeks progressed, she was able to get a little calmer during Shavasana. You know, at first she'd like burp, fart, like she'd do anything to just get us out of there, you know? Um, but again, noticing, well, what's happening for her instead of taking it personally, you know, we just worked through that. Like I can understand it might be hard for you to sit in your body right now. Um, you know, things might be coming up for you. That might be kind of hard, but I ask you to breathe through that or, you know, whatever I'm kind of like asking them to do, I know she's probably going through it. So she's fighting it. And I remember as the weeks went by, she just was able to sit in her body a little bit 
longer. Um, she wasn't burping or farting anymore. Um, she wasn't, you know, angry to be there. And I remember asking all of them to write something at the end of it, you know, saying, has yoga helped you or not? And if it's not helped you, don't write like that it has, like just be honest. And she wrote, um, I will never forget this experience. Um, something, something along the lines of yoga has helped me because I'm, I would have never experienced something like this before and I'll never forget this experience. So that for me right there was like, you know what, (laughs) like it was just, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, there are probably not no words that can probably describe the feeling I had when I read that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty similar for me as an educator, you know, I mean, and I think it's, it's hard because, um, you know, when you're, I, I know everyone faces this challenge, particularly teachers is, you know, sometimes a kid is acting out, um, and, you know, I think when you start, you hear it as, you know, you hear punish me. Um, but as you, as you go through years and, uh, you know, learn about the traumas, it's, it's, it's helped me, you know, and, and, but it's, it doesn't sound like help me. It sounds like something else. And so, you know, it takes a lot of, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look down on people that struggle to be compassionate for recalcitrant children. Cause it's really tough. Um, because your body, I mean, naturally you feel like, oh, you're, you know, I mean, in my case, a kid telling me to F off or whatever, um, like, like there's part of my fight or flight that's like, all right, I have to stand my ground, you know, but that's not, that's not what happened. What should happen. What should happen is you respond in love and care. And that's, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And I, um, you know, especially with kids, you know, I think, I think the challenge with kids is, is especially when you can probably talk about this with yoga, it's like have both having the trauma, but also you got to have, you know, they got to have some maturity, some executive functioning a little bit to like be able to receive things. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. It, I'm, and I'm sure in, if you're not patient, you can easily get frustrated, you know? Yeah. And you know, it kind of takes me back as you're talking to the whole point of um, like really knowing yourself. And I think a lot of, a lot of us, again, don't really truly know our triggers or ourselves, and have a lot of unresolved trauma. So I think a lot of these kids um, that have their own trauma trigger the trauma within us. And if we don't know that that's what's being triggered, then we're, we're going to, you know, respond in a way that's not so compassionate and empathetic because our defenses are up and we don't even know. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, teachers, you know, just by, it's kind of like being, you know, it's not quite like being a a cop, but like the years of dealing with kind of like all the, all the difficulties of a classroom environment, um, you know, can ultimately take its toll. And we, you know, we medicate it in different ways that are not always healthy. Um, can, can you talk about, um, so beyond trauma, how, how does your being an LMF, I, I can't, I can't ever say LMFT. it. LMFT. It feels like there's one too many syllables. Um, how is, how is um, being an LMFT? I mean, how, how do you see yourself being different from a typical yoga instructor? I mean, beyond just like your training and, mm-hmm. and seeing it spiritually, like, do you find yourself kind of like, you know, thinking with the therapist mind sometimes when people are doing certain <laughs> things, you know what I mean? Um, yes and no. I think, well, 
I hate to use that word typical because again, like I've been in amazing classes, you know, and I think there's so many great instructors out there um, that I've been to as well, you know, um, that just have like this knowing within them and really use like their own healing process in the yoga class. Um, so I, I don't know, I don't want to say typical, but I definitely feel like for me, sometimes I have to almost turn it off sometimes, sometimes because, because, because that I feel, I don't know, maybe if I wasn't an LMFT, I wouldn't notice um, the way they're in their body, the little sub subtle cues. Like um, I think even, you know, after class when they're talking to me or um, during class, if I, you know, say something and I notice they're not really comfortable with something that just my mind clicks on, you know? Um, and so I, I feel like I've got to make it, I've got to make it to the studio, like every yoga studio, you know, people go in really for yoga, like for a physical aspect. Right. So I can't just make it trauma informed the way I want to make it. But I think I recognize for sure that everybody in my class has something going on for them, you know, or has had something going on for them. So I think I have to always find this balance of doing enough, but not doing too much and going deep, but not going too deep where I can't help them afterwards. You know, they're walking away feeling something deeper. And then now what's the follow up for that? So I think it's, it's definitely like something that helps me um, dive a little bit deeper in my classes, but it also is a balance that I, I think I'm still working towards, honestly. I don't think I've gotten it yet. I'm still, still working towards it. Okay. I want to ask some kind of general questions, um, yeah. you know, that might be helpful for people and, you know, maybe wanting to develop a practice. So how, how do you think, I mean, when you walk into a yoga studio, um, with your background and your experience, how do you know it's a good yoga studio? Hmm. That's a good question. What do you look for? Do you, do you look, I mean, if they, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel, okay, this is going to sound so cliche, like, Oh, energy yoga instructor, but I, I really, it's like the energy I feel, you know, like if I walk in and I mean, of course, the first thing is like how people treat you, you know, so if people are saying hi and they're, they're welcoming, then of course I'm going to feel good. But it's also like, you know, people can say hi and not really mean it. So the genuineness, I guess, when you first walk in, um, makes me know that it's, it's, you know, it's a nice place to be. Now I'm starting to feel a little bit more safe. And then in class, um, you know, if, if a yoga instructor, yeah, it has to be physical to some extent, you know, and that's why I go to yoga too, honestly, because I love the physical practice. I love the asanas. I think it makes my body feel great and strong, but that, that the instructor are genuine, like they're genuine. So if, if they are more about the physical practice, that that's what they give us, you know, um, try, and trying not to be something that they're not. And I think, I think any yoga yogi that goes into any studio can know or sense when you have an instructor that isn't genuine or aren't really being themselves. Um, so I think, I think for me, I guess the bottom like word would be like genuineness of the people, the yoga instructor, 
you know, and the energy you're getting off of that. Is, um, is yoga something you feel like if you want to get into it, something you need to do daily or can it be like therapy and you go once a week to get your yoga in and then you're good to go? Yeah, it's, it's daily, (laughs) you know, I mean, because I say that because it's not like I've been the perfect yogi either, you know, there are probably weeks sometimes that I go and I'm like, I just don't, I can't, I don't want to, you know, but again, I try to remember that yoga is just not asanas, right? Like there's so many aspects of it that you can practice every single day. And so um, again, I feel like there's so much to learn and so much to do um, when it comes to yoga that I'm, I'm still really, really young at it. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like a toddler in a sense. And so I feel like though it's something that yes, like daily practice, you know, um, you can't just do it once and then feel better. Uh, I mean, you can feel better, but not do it once and then, you know, you're good. I think it's daily for me anyway. Yeah. I, and I want to talk about breath for a second. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always a nut for some kind of new like health trend or whatever. Like I've got my homemade kombucha in the fridge over there. I take my daily, daily shot of apple cider vinegar. You know, I I do my thing. I do, you know, I try to keep up. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the things I did this last year was I took, uh, I took this class with this guy named Wim Hof, who's this like breath expert um, and like cold water exposure. Um, And I, I did not understand the depth of what breath work is. And I think there's actually a book that just came out called Breathe, the new science or the, the forgotten science of uh, breath work or something like that. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I'll put it in the link at the bottom. But, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about how breath uh, plays a role in yoga? Because I think when people think of yoga, they just think of the, the body movements, but they don't think about the way. And, I, and, it, and to be honest, the breath work pissed me off when I first started doing yoga because they would be like, okay, now breathe in while yeah. you move forward. And I'm like, well, I can only breathe like so far. And that's a long ass step lady. So like, right. I, can't, I can't do that shit. I'm sorry. And so I, you know, for me, it was yeah. just like, you know, I, I, I just thought, okay, these are the postures that I have to hold. Whatever I do with my breath is my own business. Right. Right. So, so tell, tell me where, yeah. tell me where I'm off. <laughs> I think you already know where you're off, but okay. Okay, um, yeah, no, no. just okay, okay. talk to my old self. Talk to my old self. Okay, okay. Well, Jordan, Thank breath you. work is really important because, well, so it's really amazing. Yoga amazes me because now there's so much scientific research behind yoga, right? Like pranayama, um, asanas. But back then, like thousands and thousands of years ago, you know, there was none of this research. So. But now it's been proven that, so prana, they call, is like this life force, this energy that's around us, right? So when we breathe in prana, that's energy, life force. Obviously, if we didn't breathe, we'd die, right? So we're breathing in this life force, this energy, and yama is like the control of, or the mastery of that energy, that breath. So when you're bringing in your prana to your body, and this new energy to your body, it can do so many different things for you. So one way to work with it is chakras, you know, but if you scientifically want to talk about it, it, it helps to, especially like for trauma um, survivors to help with your sympathetic nervous system. So for instance, like, you know, when, when we're in our fight or flight mode, we're taking those short breaths, And that's kind of like helping us with our whole body response, right? 
Right. But then when we start to slow down our breath and we make our, like, for instance, one of them is making your inhales a little bit longer than your exhales. It slows down that response and it lets your parasympathetic nervous system kick in and like calm your body down. So now you're having the mastery over that energy. It's not this anxious energy anymore, right? It's this calm energy happening in your body. So, you know, a lot of times I'll say like, you know, send your breath to those parts of you that are stagnant and people are probably like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, but some people that know, understand, like when you have parts of your body where it just feels like stagnant and, and still like you just bringing that breath in allows that new fresh energy to like wash through almost. So scientifically it's proven that way, you know, but then also as you practice it in your yoga practice, you, you understand that really your breath is, is your superpower. You can do so much with it. And it is like, it is like that life force, that energy, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, one of the, one of the things going back to, you know, I mean, I just have such a, you know, uh, obsession with this course that I took is one of the big things that we use breath work for is, is when we do cold exposure to control our breath. And so Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just full on, you know, get vulnerable here. So I have in my garage, um, a chest freezer that could probably fit, um, a slaughtered cow, maybe not a large cow, but a big cow. Um, I bought it from a dairy, um, and I fill it with water and Epsom salts and I keep it about 40 degrees and I get inside the tank, um, and then try to maintain my heart rate and also through my breath and try and keep it in the seventies. And that's, that's been that practice that like Mm -hmm. body, you know, the stress on the body with the controlled breath, it, it is amazing how much your breath can actually control everything in your body. And I know we yes. probably sound like some crazy ass woo woo doctors right we now. We do. We sound crazy which, which right is, now. Which I, to yeah. be honest, I don't give a shit because it's right, right. and it's true. Um, <laughs> it's so and, true. And so yeah, I, it reminds me, it reminds me of like, when you're talking about that, it reminds me of, you know, the monks in the Himalayas that are just like, they have, they don't have North face on. They're sitting on a mountaintop, like, you know, chilling. <laughs> right. You know, I mean like, right. It, it, it's like the, you know, it's like the, the dudes that carry up the equipment for the rich white guys that want to climb Everest, you know, like they don't have hypoxia, you know, cause they, no. they, they their body has adapted to those heights and they can, right. they can, they can run up the mountain if they wanted to. Um, right. And so I, yeah, I, as, as woo woo as it sounds, um, you know, I, I would encourage you if you're skeptical to just do your research because the research is there. I mean, just because right. the people that are saying it, uh, you know, also drink apple cider vinegar doesn't mean it's wrong, you know. And sit in, you know, like a freezer. Right, right. So, yeah, uh, yeah and, I, I. Yeah, and talk about chakras. I mean, you know, so. Yeah, so I'm yeah. a, I'm a full-on believer. Um, I, I want to come back kind of to wrap up, and I, I missed a, I missed a spot on food that I want to talk about. Um, yeah. So let me just jump into that before we kind of do our wrap-up questions, which is. Are there certain Indian dishes that people uh, never order that they should be ordering? Because I feel like when I, I, I go to a, I have my, I have my usual, right? What's your usual? So I, my usual typically is Malai Kofta, which we've talked about before. Um, and 
Gobi uh, Alu and, and, and those kind of like safe-ish things, I think. Yeah. Occasionally yeah. I will venture into the goat curry land, but you know, it just depends on the day, right? Okay. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't want to be the guy that orders butter chicken all the time, you know, cause you know, those guys, like they walk in talking about North face jackets. Uh, they walk in with their North face jackets. They're very That's cool. okay though. That's okay. I, mean, I know, but let me make fun of them because it's my species. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry. So, um, you know, there's, I don't want to be one. I, I like trying things. I like trying things. So mm-hmm. I'm curious if there are things that my kind of white Western eyes are ignoring. Ooh. Uh, well, I, I don't think people order dosas very often and I'm like a huge, and, and then I'm also plant-based. So I love some dosas, like so good masala dosa, like, you know, they're stuffed potato. I mean, they're potatoes with masala and then it's wrapped up in like a rice kind of, I don't know what you call it. I mean, in your terms, um, well, it's kind of like like an empanada, right? In some ways. It's similar? Kind of. It's a little bit lighter. Yeah, like it's like a crepe or crepe or I don't know how to say that <laughs> word. <laughs> That's my Indian coming out. Um, but yeah, and it has potatoes in the middle with some masala and then, you know, with some chutney and um, sambar. And that's like so good because I'm from South India. I love, um, you know, I love, I was born there. So I love all that stuff like Italy's dosas, I think. A lot of people don't try them and they're, it's really good. Um, is it more, um, do you experience more South Indian or kind of like the North Indian? Like I'm, I'm trying to, to what, Punjabi? Think what, yeah, uh, like Punjabi food. Like do you experience, yeah. which is more common around, around here? Um, I think both. I think both. Um, and I love both because my, you know, I'm from North and South, my long story, but I, yeah, I think there's both here. Like paratas are really good too, like alu paratas or, um, you know, alu gobi paratas are really good too. Uh, I think I think people don't try those very much. And it's basically like, I'd say like a tortilla. Um, and then in the middle, you know, it's all that good stuffing and you eat it with, again, like yogurt or they call it pickle or it's, that stuff's really good. And I don't think a lot of people try that either. So. Yeah, I think our world would be a lot better place if people experimented with food more often. I think you'll get, you know, you get, uh, you, you typically, you know, I'm not, I'm not just making generalizations about Fresno, but typically when you're going to get food that's something different in culture, t- typically you're going to leave your neighborhood, uh, which is a yeah. good thing for you. Um, yeah. And the great thing about Fresno is that there are, there are so many pockets of unknown foods that people should try. You know, um, recently we've been talking about Lao food, which I haven't really experimented much into, but I, I need to and want to. Um, yeah. and, and I think the, I think we will, you know, I mean, our country's so divided right now, but we will start to heal, come back to healing by connecting, uh, with each other through food. I think that's a good way to, a good place to start. Maybe it's not For the sure. whole solution, obviously nowhere near yeah. but you know it's a good place to start so i do want to finish yeah. with uh if you have some i like to finish with book recommendations are there any um book recommendations whether about yoga whether about therapy whether about um you know indian any indian food cookbooks i mean it, it doesn't matter to me i'm just i'm curious what yeah. uh, what you what you're reading and what you have to recommend um well you already hit the body keeps the score that'd be a big one yes Um, that is that is a must that is an absolute 
Yes. I love spiritual books. Um, I was in a book club and, you know, just to be totally, you know, hundred percent with you, I, I didn't really read all the books. I skim, I skim a lot. You know, I'm more of a, like a, I don't know, documentary, watch a documentary person, but, um, a lot of the books that I really love to skim was the four agreements. I did read that whole thing actually. And, um, I love the seat of the soul. And if you just want to have like fun, Outlander. (laughs) (laughs) You got to mix in the pulpy stuff. For me, the pulpy stuff is like, is like, like, like crime novels or like LA noir. Like I love like, Oh yeah. Mindhunter. Have you ever read Mindhunter? I, 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 I feel like I've seen the Netflix show, but I didn't read the book. Yeah. It's yeah. And John Douglas heard that one. And, John Douglas, I think. Yeah, the FBI profiler who started the whole FBI unit on profiling. That's an amazing book. That's yeah, yeah. I, we've we we started that show, but my wife's job is basically in that world, and so as yeah. soon as we started that show, she was like too close to home, too close to home. Yes. Um, yes. So, but I, it it definitely intrigues me. I I, I like those books that are. Um, they maybe have the same plot every single time, but you get into the mind of the character and you try mm-hmm. to understand like how they think and see the world. I think that's just such a neat thing. So I, I really yeah. appreciate you coming on and uh, you know, I, where can people find out about your work and what you guys are doing and help? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Um, we, so we're on Instagram, Facebook, and we also have um, our own website, namasteforcompassion.com. And so a lot of how you'll find kind of like our, what we're doing um, is through those avenues. And we also have a newsletter. So if you ever want to be on the newsletter, you could just send us your email and we'll be, you know, happy to send you that. Um, we, we do things throughout the year, but around December, November, December, we start raising funds for the Balpishpa home. And right now we are going to do a yogathon this Saturday, um, the 26th. I don't know when this will air, but that's all going towards the Creek Fires. Um, so aiding the families of the Creek Fires. Yeah, that's so, talk about trauma. I mean, just like the fact, like, I, I don't know um, who said this because it's been reposted so many times, but like about the ashes being, you know, being holy and being the animals that couldn't escape or whatever. And the fact yes. that we've all been breathing it in too is just like such a, I don't know. It's like there's someone's, someone needs to write the morose poem about that. Cause it's just, it's just yeah. so dark to, I mean, you know, I, I, I was feeling better as you know, the kind of the air quality uh, has gotten better, but you know, I, I think it's as soon as things get better, people forget, you know, but the rebuilding, yeah. the rebuilding of that world up there is, Mm-hmm. is not is not going to be a, a small amount of time it's going to take a you know take many years probably decades yeah i think i just read today or or today or yesterday that it's become the largest fire of california ever in history i think like 286,000 acres or so. yeah it's it's really sad and you know it's it's crazy because it's right in our backyard and i feel like I, I know directly a couple of families, you know, that have been affected by it. And so it's very, very close to home. And we are definitely here for that. You know, we've been trying in whatever way we can. And we always where and whenever, t- anytime we fundraise, it's always directly to the people. It's never like we give it to a big organization, you know, um, we always give it directly to the people. So. 
Yeah, we could probably have a whole nother conversation about large nonprofits and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what, what's, I don't know what it's called, scientific giving or when you try to measure how much of your funds actually go. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. and we're all 100% volunteers, so nobody pays for us to be on the board. We're just there. Beautiful. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Jordan. All right. That's it for us today, folks. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to give us a rating and review. It really goes a long way to help spreading this podcast. And if you're feeling generous, there's always Patreon there if you'd like to make a financial contribution. Until next time.